The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Order. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, December the 7th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, we wanted to discuss what is generally agreed to be the biggest challenge facing this government, which is the provision of appropriate homes at an affordable price for everyone who needs them. Will the plans announced by Minister Simon Coveney work? And are they the correct long-term approach to housing? With me in the studio today to discuss this are Tom Parland, the Director General of the Construction Industry Federation, Professor Keen O'Callaghan from the Department of Geography and Trinity College Dublin, Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil spokesman on education and skills, and our own political correspondent, Fia Kelly. Fia, just to kick off with something that you had in uh, the paper earlier this week, a bit of a spat between um, uh, Tom and uh, and and Minister Pascal Donoghue, apparently. Yeah, I think I, Tom will be able to enlighten us further on that particular topic, but I think what happened was, uh, it was bored. I think Tom and uh, his colleague Hubert Fitzpatrick were in before the Cabinet Subcommittee on Housing along with NAMA to discuss the housing problem. And I think, I suppose, in fairness to them, if you're brought in before the likes of the Taoiseach, the Minister for Finance, the Minister for Public Expenditure, the Minister of Housing, and you're asked what needs to be done, you're going to take the opportunity to say what you think needs to be done. And I think Tom and his colleagues perhaps ask for slightly more than the government is willing to give. And I think they ticked off Pascal Donoghue in particular, who I think said to Tom, well, what are you guys doing and haven't we given you enough? And the state has thrown the kitchen sink at this over the last year to 18 months. Uh, so I think it kind of crystallised what some people in government believe Uh, is that they have, over the last two years, introduced a number of policies and initiatives and measures in order to kickstart the housing sector. And perhaps they feel they're at their limit now and that they want the market to catch up. To respond. To respond and catch up with what they have promised. And they they don't think they're seeing that yet. Now, given the nature of the industry, that's going to take quite a while. But I think uh, Pascal's only whose anger, I think, speaks to that. And we kind of see that reflected again in... We have another initiative from Simon Coveney June next week on the rental sector. He's launching a a strategy on the rental sector. And he has a list as long as his arm, apparently, of, you know, measures he wants to introduce. And he's getting some kickback from the Department of Finance, the Department of Public Expenditure, who believe that the market should be let to uh, follow through now uh, on foot of what the government has done over the last 18 months. So they don't want to see major interventions in the the rental market? They don't want to see any major interventions in the rental market at this point because they believe the, the state has intervened in the market quite enough These at this stage. These would be the sort of things which have been bandied about, about assistance to people assistance below to people. a certain income yes, level. Yes, that's, that's been shot down as well. And I think if you cast your mind back to this time last year, I think there was uh, a rental plan announced by Alan Kelly and he had something of a two-year rental freeze that whereby that if you had a, an increase in your rent in 2015, you wouldn't have a review until 2017. They don't want a measure of that, I suppose, significance again. They want you know stuff about tenancy rights, landlord's rights, but nothing that would distort the market to a significant effect. Mm. Uh, Tom, there's a lot of talk around about fake news these days, so we better make sure, first of all, is Felix's report 100% accurate of proceedings? It, well, it entirely wasn't, uh, but uh, again, it was a cabinet subcommittee meeting, and, uh, you know... Generally, I, I sat on the other side of the fence. Uh, now, my recollection of Cabinet Subcommittee is much smaller. Uh, this was a full room uh, of people, and there was a lot of advisors and other players as Which well. Which made it and, more leakable. And NAMA were in as well, and they, they, took the, they took the table after we left. So they, mm. they were sitting in the room. But 
you know, and what amuses me is uh, the big story is about Pascal Donahue's capacity for anger, which maybe surprises a lot of people, and maybe that's something that he, he likes to have out there. But, you know, notwithstanding that, there were genuine issues, and there's been a lot of collaboration between the government and the construction industry with regard to solving the housing crisis, because somebody is going to have to build them. And, like, for a long time, the construction industry were in a bad place in terms of our legacy issues and being attached to the blame of the previous collapse and so on. But I think now there's an appreciation that, yes, we are going to have to build. And we have, obviously, the capacity to create massive lot of jobs as well. And house building or construction is very, very good for the Exchequer in terms of the massive taxes that it returns. So, from that point of view, uh, the meeting uh, that... Uh, has been reported on would be fairly normal, we've had a number of them, uh, to update uh, the government with regard to what's happening. And, and what uh, is happening? Well, this year it looks as if we'll finish about 14,000 houses. The SRI came out yesterday, I think, or the day before, and said, uh, you know, by t 2022 we'll need 30,000 houses. So we clearly need to, to, to ramp up. Uh, the re figures we're using now that we'd expect uh, next year, taking into account that the new changes that the government have introduced uh, with regard to the help to buy and so on will begin to apply after the 2nd or 3rd of January. So all those things take a while to kick in. The changes in the central bank uh, guidelines will kick in after the 1st of January. And the big uh, investment in social housing, you know, is being hopefully being tendered by local authorities and housing agency. But there's very little of it out there yet. Like our members are hanging out there to see these tenders appearing on the e-tenders and ready to bid for them. And I can guarantee they will bid very, very uh, uh, enthusiastically for them and it will be a very competitive process. But that's just not out there. It is all going to happen. It is good news and so on. We're predicting uh, about an increase of about 35% in house building next year, which is very substantial, but it will be about 4,000 houses. We might be building eight, 18,000 units next year. And the rest depends then on what uh, social housing that the government will succeed in putting out for tender in their capital programme. In relation to the social housing, Thomas Byrne, I see so you agreeing there with Tom Parr. Yeah, I, mean, think it's a bit case, I have a case in my own constituency. Like immediately after the general election, we were, the TDs and Mead were brought into the city officials and the housing, the councillors and the housing SBC and Mead said, "Look, there's a project in Kells, 46 houses. Uh, it's about to go to tender. We need ye to, to get it over the line for us." So we all went in and put our pressure on. And what did we get about a month later, back in April? Oh, this plan has to go back to the drawing board. Literally, it had to go back to architectural planning because of some mistake. I've been putting questions down since. And the last question got a very, very curt response. See reply to previous question. And it seems to be a huge amount of red tape tied up in departments. I'm not sure that people get the urgency of the crisis out there. I mean, that's, that's in Kells. Any town in this country, there's a massive housing crisis. There. Presumably, though, these things need to be done right because we know, do, but we, we know that in the past, when, when, you know, they often weren't done right. Yeah, but what's been happening for the last few years? This was put out for apartheid planning a few years ago. It was going through all the motions in the department. Uh, the council believed it was going to tender. There's only one project. Uh, and it's not going to tender, and it hasn't gone to tender, and it hasn't even gone back to the drawing board yet, as far as I can see. And that's, to me, it's, it's symptomatic of the type of bureaucratic delays uh, we see. We're not looking to, to rush. I mean, me more than anyone, I more than anyone support good planning coming from the county that I come from. Uh, we've had lots of mistakes over the years. But we need houses too. And, you know, we, we, there's, there's a, there doesn't seem to be a sense of urgency uh, within the department. So that's a problem a you're identifying with the, with the implementation. Yes. What about the overall policy, uh, given Fianna Fáil's position vis-a-vis -vis the government? You, it's fair to say you broadly support it? Well, I suppose it comes from a situation where you had Alan Kelly's... I mean, Fiat said that the government has thrown the kitchen sink at this over the last 18 months. The kitchen sink wasn't enough. And Alan Kelly's policy announced at the end of the last government or towards the end of the last government wasn't enough. So I suppose when we come into the position, position that we're in now uh, we insisted on a you know complete rehaul of, of the strategy 
Uh, and I suppose in that sense, it's broadly supported, provided that it delivers and provided that there's actually the will to implement it. Um, we've had concerns about a number of items that have been well publicised. We put a detailed submission into the uh, rental uh, strategy that's about to be published and we're, you know, we're, we're waiting to see that. And we, I suppose we could have played politics with it. I think Barry Cowan, in fairness to him, would rather that we actually influence the policy to get it actually changed and to make sure it actually delivers for people rather than sort of, you know, having, you know, very short-term gains politically, you know, criticising the government. And we will, we will and do call out the government on, on, on matters such as this, but on housing, it seems to us that it's far more important uh, that we actually get these things delivered and that, you know, Simon Coveney and the, the rest of the government infrastructure actually do deliver on these things. And that's our focus on making sure that that happens. Keen, you, you have a somewhat different view. Um, you put a, you posted a blog post this week about the housing bill and its implementation. And essentially, uh, in a nutshell, you're arguing that you were making the same mistakes again. Yeah, well, I guess what frustrates me about some of the discussions at the moment is that I feel we're going back to this argument about supply being the fundamental issue, right? And obviously supply is very important. Supply is a key issue to the housing thing. But without uh, affordability and security of tenure, supply is not going to provide a stable and secure housing system. So Tom brought up there a minute ago the issue of social housing. And I think from the action plan, it's quite unclear actually where this social housing is going to come from. So from uh, a bar chart in the in the report itself, it's suggests that over 50% or about 50% of the social housing that will be provided by 2022, I think, will come from the HAP scheme. So that's in the private rental sector again, so it's not local authorities maybe owning and operating social housing. Uh, FIAC also brought up the issue... Could you just clarify for for, for, for my ignorance, I mean, what is that scheme and how would that work? uh, The HAP scheme is the housing assistance payment and basically means that tenants in social housing will be catered for within the private rental sector. So this is uh, following on from the rent uh, rent assistance scheme that uh, was brought about in the 1990s or 2000s, whereby local authorities were increasingly kind of divesting a lot of the social housing that they owned and operated themselves, and social housing tenants instead were being put into private rental accommodation, and then they were being subsidised by government payments to those private landlords. Right. And so this so is a continuation, continuation really, or a further kind of, of elaboration of yeah. that system. So it's not social housing in the sense that it would normally be accepted. It's not social housing in the normal sense, and it also, with it, because we don't have security of tenure in the private rental sector, it also brings with it a lack of security of tenure for those social housing tenants on HAP scheme. So we're returning to the same kinds of problems in terms of uh, a very uh, core focus on owner occupation as the only real secure tenure option in the country and private rental sector is not secure in the long term. People are vulnerable to kinds of evictions, either economic evictions or because the landlord is selling the property or something. Um, and in the social housing, unless you're in a, a scheme where it's owned by a housing association or by the local authority, you're also vulnerable to those same kinds of things. Is there a very deep-seated thing there? I was listening to Fintan McNamara of the, the, the Landlords Association the, the other day talking about the average stay or the maximum stay from the average private sector tenant was about four years in a, mm. in a dwelling. So that means that it's not that, that, that the system does not allow people to think of, of, of these kind of dwellings as long-term or permanent family homes. Yeah, and I think uh, historically in Ireland, the rental sector has been seen as a kind of short-term option towards a more secure owner occupation or move into social housing. And that's not the case in other European countries. So, for example, in a country like Germany or a country like the Netherlands, it's quite common for someone to live in uh, rental accommodation for long periods 
periods of time. But 10, there's also 20, far more people years. living in rental accommodation there than is. private rental accommodation yeah, than there so, used to be. So, for example, in a city like uh, Berlin, for example, is about 80% of the population. That city live in rental accommodation. That's actually gone down in more recent years. Uh, but in, in Dublin, for example, now one in three tenants live in the private rental sector. So I think this is also a knock-on effect from the boom. And what we have now is that the rental sector is becoming increasingly important. And perhaps owner-occupation is becoming more unaffordable for a lot of people. And uh, I'm not sure is that set to change. So I would argue in terms of like the immediate crisis, uh, what we're dealing with, I think, is, is, is an immediate crisis, an acute crisis of homelessness, and particularly coming from the rental sector, but driven by a much more structural problem, a long-term set of problems in the housing system itself. So I would argue that one of the things we need to do is we need to have some sort of rent certainty. We need to have some sort of better security of tenure in the private rental sector and also get towards building uh, more social housing, which I think is best owned and operated by local authorities. Does the construction industry of Federation have a view on those issues? Yeah, well I think we'd certainly like to see the local authorities building more social housing and I do appreciate that the money appears to be committed uh, in the last budget to that. Uh, there are certainly uh, very unnecessary bureaucratic delays. The one positive, Minister Coveney has appointed a housing delivery office and has staffed it with some key people that are commercially minded, that are experienced and you know I think they're looking hard nosed and saying they're looking they're not they're not taking the word of a developer or builder about a problem they understand and they're looking at local authorities and where delays are and like local authorities because they didn't build any houses over the last 10 years don't have a lot of uh, um, experience in that area they are being ramped up with people and um, so I think that will deliver fairly shortly but the housing delivery officers are going to have to be flat out to make sure that they're able to to, to brush away uh, the obstacles that are there. Like delays for, in terms of viability, a delay is a major extra cost. And, you know, if you have to go back to the drawing board or if if a particular builder uh, that we've heard about down in County Mead uh, was lined up to do a job of 46 houses and next thing all of a sudden he discovers it's delayed for six months, that's knocking his schedule out in a big way and costing him a lot of money and so on. So I would, ho- I would expect that we're going to see that delivery of social housing ramped up. Um, there's lots of contractors and ha- specialist house builders available to do that. And as I said, it will be done very competitively. Thomas Byrne, are we, are, are we going to see, a, I suppose, a recurrence of what we saw during the boom times with kind of housing estates popping up in dormitory towns, you know, I suppose in County Meath, some of them, for yeah. people who are commuting to and working in Dublin, which was really, you know, socially and demographically a bit of a disaster. You know, I mean, are we, no, are we I, going I to mean, take the opportunity with these with these new measures to kind of to address, you know, some of the some of the environmental issues as well? Well, I, 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 I don't think that people living in County Mead who previously lived in Dublin are moved out as a social and demographic disaster. I don't accept that. Um, I think that what's, hap- what's happened is... We have an incredibly um, incredible level of urban sprawl in this country around the, around the, the, the greater Dublin well, area, don't we? I mean, we have a choice. between If you want everyone to live in apartments in Dublin, people don't want to live in apartments, actually. They like to have their own place. Now, what's happened in County Mead is, that, yes, and long before my time, I'm glad to say, but houses were put up, there was a lack of facilities in certain areas. Uh, and I think that's the mistake that was made. That has, that has changed, I hope. Uh, and we're, we're, we've got away from the situation uh, that, you know, that that led us to. Now, having said that, we are still dealing with some of the problems. There are clubs down there that still don't have pitches, etc. Um, schooling issues generally resolved. But you, you do find in these towns, in Shotland, Retote, Ashburn, uh, Dunboyne, communities are really coming together, actually, and people are really getting involved. 
our local clubs in Column Kills now, Leinster football champions. That type of thing has really brought the community together. Having said that, that club could do it more facilities too uh, for the numbers that are there. So there are issues, but what I suppose County Mead has been trying to do is actually to try to tr- attract uh, industry and jobs into the county. Now, they have been fairly successful at that, you know, in conjunction with the IDA, etc. Facebook have established a data centre. Now, that's not a huge amount of jobs, but it's certainly something that you can put on your flag. As such, we have Facebook. So Shire has come in now to the Dunboyne area. It's going to be 550 really good jobs there right out in the suburbs, you know, and hopefully the houses need to be built in that area as well that people can actually live and work in really good jobs in County Mead they don't have to worry and that you know addresses some of the environmental considerations about driving etc there's been some effort to improve public transport we need to go further but yes you're right fundamentally my county and my constituency is going to be asked to take a lot of the houses that are going to be built uh, and what I've been saying I suppose my focus and my focus in towns like Stimullen and Dunboyne where this has come up as an issue now in the last few months uh, is the public has to be brought along with whatever rezoning, whatever planning has taken place. Historically in Ireland and, and even recently in, in County Mead and in other counties as well, the whole issue of zoning and planning has been extremely opaque and you know there hasn't been full community involvement in what's going on and communities haven't been aware that this field is going to be rezoned. So, you know, the, it, it, and again, it happened very recently at Stamullen where a little line was added on to a, a variation of a plan saying that the, it is envisaged that this, the status of Stamola will, will change to uh, a, a moderate and st- sustainable growth town. Now, that means that you could triple the size of the town, that that's what the plan was. This put in as a footnote. Now, I spotted this, had, held a public meeting. Residents mightn't be against it, but they certainly want to know about it and contribute sure. to it. So that's my focus, is actually to bring the people along with you when, when these things are happening, because it is certainly going to affect my area big time uh, compared to other areas in Kildare as well. What about a bit of the historical perspective, Ken? Because, I mean, there's obviously the... the this, this state has been involved in house building in a major way on and off over the last century or so, really. Um, and the outcomes have been good sometimes and they've been more mixed at other times. And you, you, you've written a bit about this, too. Yeah. So, so what Thomas was saying there about the, the issue with kind of planning and the issue of zoning over the period of Celtic Tiger. So one of the major drivers of the big expansion of housing during that time was obviously tax incentive schemes that were put forward from the Urban Renewal Act and the Rural Renewal Scheme. And these were uh, initially kind of maybe a good idea to kick start some development, first in urban areas, secondly in rural areas. But, but only they, in certain counties. Only in certain counties, yeah, not, yeah for the rural renewal ones. Not yeah. Mead, no, yeah, yeah. not Mead. So, but they, they were part of the, the Up Shannon region, for yeah, example, where one in three houses yeah. was built during a, like a five or ten year period during that time. But also, on, uh, in addition to that, you've got a lack of sort of joined up planning in those areas as well. So, for example, you've got places like Adamstown or Clangriffin, which are supposed to be these planned developments, but they're sort of scuppered then because there's unregulated development in surrounding counties, perhaps like Mead and like Kildare as well. Uh, around that. So you've got housing estates popping up here, there and everywhere, which actually detracts from the ability of planners to plan for more sustainable transport routes, for example. So you could, if you had a concentration of uh, population coming to Mead, for example, you could plan better rail links into the city centre of Dublin if Dublin was a major concentration of jobs. Um, And this is kind of the problem with, uh, I think, a a knee-jerk approach to sort of incentivising the supply of housing without thinking about some of those kind of broader issues about creating communities after that. And I kind of worry that uh, some of the the discussion that we had after the last crash about changes to the planning system haven't really been followed through. There's there's new introduction of a core strategy as part of all planning documents now, which is a kind of uh, uh, an introductory section at the start of each development plan, which links it to broader regional and national plans. And before, we didn't really have to have that in terms of local development plans. 
plans or city development plans. So that's some kind of progressive measure. But I, I fear that uh, some of these lessons are now being forgotten again when there's this new crisis of housing. Yeah, I, I, I actually agree with you. I was interested to read in your piece that you, you mentioned um, in the new housing action plan, this fast track planning process, that it would for a certain for developments of a certain size, I think it's hundred it's hundred, 100 units, units yeah. hundred units now that you could go directly to Embora Planala and basically override the councils. Although there is still a mechanism for appeal, but mm. what way does that interact with development plans and lo- like what mm. way like councils would have had an input into what way they want to see their areas develop? Would that totally negate all that? Um, I, I'm not sure how that would work out. To be yeah. honest, like I, in in a way, Embora Planala have. Um, you know, they look, some of the local authorities, for example, don't have a big track record of, of d- rejecting planning yeah. applications, for example. I think Longford, I think, for example, in a, in a 10-year period, maybe didn't reject any planning application that came in. Um, I think I heard that statistic once. Uh, but so... Uh, what I think this does is I think it, it removes one avenue for uh, some sort of objection to it. And mm. so some groups like Antashka have been quite prominent in objecting to particular developments that they thought were environmentally unsustainable for an area or were going to produce more houses than were needed in a particular area. Uh, so what this would do essentially, I think, is it would just remove that one layer of objection that can happen. The, the other thing that has been happening with planning uh, is that a lot of the bigger developments engage in pre-planning discussions with local authorities, and this is a way in which they kind of essentially sound out what would be, what will pass, you know, yeah. what will get through planning. Also, I take Thomas's point about not everybody wants to live in an apartment in Dublin, mm-hmm. but the, the fact is also that, you know, family formations are changing in Ireland, you know, the demographics of the country are changing, there will be a larger cohort of, of older people and, you know, empty nesters over the next few years, and is that, you know, is, is that all taken into account in the way that we're, we're, we're changing the way we think about spatial strategies? Uh, I, I don't think so, really. So, like, is Thomas there a focus still the, on the three-bed semi, semi? I think there is a focus on that, and I think, in, in a way, Thomas is right that there's, there's a preference for that, but I think part of that preference is also an outcome of the kinds of lack of, of planning that we did for apartments in the city centre of Dublin, for example, over the last uh, 20 years. So some of, because the there was a kind of market imperative driving it. There was a lot of smaller apartments built, for example. There wasn't so much in the line of apartments that could actually suit families built in the city centre. So in a sense, you know, people were, after this big period of growth or expansion, where perhaps there was a perception that people's attitudes towards city centre living were perhaps changing. Some people got stung, I think, then after that, where people got stuck in kind of smaller two-bedroom apartments with growing families and then felt like, you know, because they'd bought this place and it was in negative equity, they were had a difficulty getting out of it then. And then they were maybe stung in terms of, like, what they saw about apartment living. And I think maybe, maybe people now, I would think that people are... Are thinking now when they buy a house that they're going to buy their sort of home that they're going to live in and there there's less of an emphasis on starter homes as the whole property ladder yeah. thing well that was so many, so many people were stung on that idea of the property ladder just yeah. buy anything in order to, to to get on that ladder but but tom in Felix's piece um he he was suggesting that the constructor industry federation is looking for further um Deregulation, I suppose, of the size, you know, requirements for apartment sizes in urban areas. Is that true? Because they were already reduced, those those, yeah. those rules well, no, by Kelly when he was minister, wasn't he? Again, I'm loath to, to mention what was discussed at the meeting, but that was inaccurate. We didn't actually look for that. But there was a discussion around what is causing the difficulty with the viability of apartment blocks. And in fairness, in, in terms of the collaboration that has been between ourselves and the government and what has emanated from the budget, it has been targeting first-time buyers. And the first-time buyer now, in terms of 
previously a first-time buyer was somebody who may be even thinking of, you know, single people with single civil servants 20 years ago could qualify for a mortgage to buy a first-time house. Now, two of them together, unless they're earning an advance of 80,000 combined and have the capacity to put a, 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 a deposit together over a period, which has been eased now, obviously, in, in terms of what's coming in, can't do that. Uh, but at least the government are facing up to that particular issue. And I think they have, they're going to crack that. We are going to have an increasing supply of houses for first-time buyers and solve that problem. But the first-time buyer now is typically seven or eight years older, probably have a couple of kids and want a three or four-bed house. Um, so we still have the problem with FDI, uh, with all of the people that continue to come here, a massive budget. And as, as Thomas mentioned, uh, you know, the big investments out in, in County Mead and the edge of Dublin and down in the Docklands, they want somewhere to live. And uh, the typical apartment they want, I mean, whatever we set as standards, uh, I'm led to believe, and I live down close enough to that area, that there are multiples of people sharing uh, two-bed apartments at, at the moment out of pure necessity. There are. I know that for a fact from talking yeah. to people who were involved in the census enumeration mm. earlier and this year. And they're not too concerned yeah. about uh, dual aspect or a whole lot of other mm. issues. They just want a place to lie down and sleep and get up in the morning and go to work and lots of other places they don't have to is, prepare is, their is, own is, food. Is, is the and I understand one big multinational as well has rented two full floors of a major hotel just to be able to guarantee that they will have accommodation for their well, that's that's a sign in. of how dysfunctional the so, Irish yeah. property so market that, is. And that is a real problem. And I believe the government must start to address just as they have focused on the, the tree bed. And there is a demand. It's not to say if we continue building, you know, massive numbers of tree bed will solve the problem. But I think we're beginning to solve that problem. But I think we need to look at the apartment issue now and, and, and start to address but that. Is, and is, I believe is, there will be is, a solution. Is, is, the, is the problem maybe perhaps that, or is the solution perhaps that in looking for those smaller style apartments that are suitable for one person who's very footloose, maybe living here for a year and a half, getting the mix right that you risk creating down the dockland. Say, for example, that's where the demand is now. So you build a lot of apartment blocks that are very small for a certain purpose. And in 20 years time, those industries get up and move on. And that place is left with those type of housing units in it. Like, if you were to look for that, would you then accept that there perhaps need to be a compromise where you'd have a development of slightly smaller units mixed with family-style units as well? Or would you be looking for, we want to build this apartment block on these bases in a uniform manner? Well, look, really, the industry build whatever the planners decide and the, 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 the government in terms of either local authorities or in terms of development plans and so on. Well, and be also what the market wants. Yeah, you know. exactly. But well, that's what should be the case. So I believe if you look down specifically at the Docklands and at the type of personnel that are there, they're probably transient. They're going to be there for a couple of years and they're going to move on. They don't want to get on a loose or they don't want to get in a train or on a bike. They want to be able to walk to their work, to spend their evenings out in restaurants, working late or in pubs, having a few drinks and have a different sort of a lifestyle than a typical family lifestyle. So I believe there should be an option for those. Now, if Google, for example, or Facebook or someone decided we're going to solve the problem, I'm sure they'd design an apartment block themselves that would be ideal for their own requirements. So I think there has to be flexibility. But as an industry, you know, I think the changes that have come, like the changes that Minister Kelly brought in were practical. Different local authorities were set, setting different standards that were impractical in terms of any commercial development in that area. So the changes, and I wouldn't be pushing, or I don't believe the industry are pushing to make mm. any big changes in those. Likewise, the new building regulations that apply to regular housing, they cost money, obviously, but that's, a, that's the downside of it. But the upside of it is we're building houses now that are superb houses. They're very, very good quality. They're sustainable. Like a lot of stuff that was built over the last 30 or 40 years, you know, is nearly at its life's end. Whereas we see some of the traditional stuff that was built 100 years ago is there, there at solid and sound. Some so of the builders who built that 
CRP, uh, you know, building now. You can say whatever you want. It's a podcast. You know, it's, it, you know, it's, I mean, I don't know how, I was at a meeting last night in a housing estate in Mead that's affected by Pyrite. Mm. And I do not know how the people responsible for that can sleep at night. I really don't. And Pyrite is one ob- obvious example of really bad work. But there's a lot of bad workmanship around, a lot of bad stuff around, a lot of the same people are involved. And I, I don't know what the, the Builders Federation, Tom, can do, but I, I think that needs to be looked at. I mean, there's... Well, Thomas, I can tell you one thing that we are doing, and certainly that's an issue, mm. a major issue for the Construction Industry Federation about the reputation and about getting rid of the so-called cowboys who did bad stuff. We are currently have a, uh, a, a Construction Industry Register of Ireland, which is a voluntary register that we've agreed with the Department of uh, Environment and Housing. And uh, the board there that administer it uh, are a totally independent board, the bulk of them appointed by government, uh, that sets very high standards. You have to have your qualifications, you have to have your competency, you have to have your tax compliance, you have to have your health and safety, you have to have your insurance. It means that you have, if you're going to engage a serial registered contractor, you'll get a professional that will guarantee you a good job. And we're hoping, we're promised that the government are going to make this a mandatory scheme before the end of the year or that it's going to be cleared by the cabinet. And, and that's there accountability and retribution for people Absolutely. who Absolutely. And you are obliged under that at the moment. Now, and I don't want to get into the to the pyrite, but pyrite was a specific issue. It was the it was the, the standards that applied to the hardcore that we used under the floors. And unfortunately, some of the stuff came out of a particular quarry that caused a problem mm-hmm. pyrite, which is not a normal situation and caused horrendous problems there, with the houses. There were also certain individuals telling people there was no pyrite problem and it let them pass statutory deadlines to sue, etc. So there was it wasn't well, simply a, 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 yeah, it wasn't a simple. There is a pyrite resolution board there that are yeah, carrying out stuff. Not, yeah. And and a lot of professionals involved. Well, and what about the sense, Vic, which, which people have definitely had in the past, and there's some sense of it is, uh, I think, bubbling up, particularly in Dublin. I know this mm-hmm. isn't a problem restricted to Dublin, but it's at its most extreme in Dublin. There's a whole generation of people who are paying extraordinary amounts of money to often to live five or six to you know to share, to, to share mm. a bedroom, just ridiculous and bizarre, and that creates resentment among a generation. And also, mm. there's a there's an increasing concern, isn't there, that it'll actually have a dampening effect on the economy because it's actually Dublin becomes an impossible place to come and live. Dublin becomes an impossible place to come and live and and, and to come and work. And I suppose there is, there is that sense, and I think the rental problem I think speaks to that in particular because you can't get quality accommodation for a decent price around Dublin city centre therefore you're, being, you're moving out to the outskirts and probably accommodation that's not suitable for you. I do take the point that Tom says in, in a certain way that if you are a certain type of person of a certain age and working for a multinational company you don't want a luxury apartment you don't want a three bed house with a, a back garden and a driveway but you probably need a mix like you know I think that's where the government are conscious of the fact that in doing so and I think those housing those changes that were introduced by Alan Kelly were done with that specifically in mind that they realised that the standards they had elevated uh, buildings to in recent years of dual aspect having a certain amount of lifts in a building having a car park space for every apartment weren't required but in doing so perhaps they could move slightly towards what Tom is saying to address that problem but then I still think the problem as I said before is that yeah, let's say, for example, you build all these apartments down the Docklands to facilitate Google, Google and Facebook. You create a single part of a city that's very transient in nature. When the, when, the, when, the, when the companies go, that becomes a ghost town as well. So you have to focus on that too, I think. I think there's, there's a real danger of sort of looking at it in this kind of way. So, like, obviously there's a kind of particular market need there at the yeah. moment, but we're also assuming then that that market need is going to stay the same forever, you know. And I think this is part of the issue of kind of the start mistakes we've made in the past is that, you know, you, you take an area like Docklands. And so, for example, we had students on a field trip down in Grand Canal Dock recently, and uh, they're maybe sort of in their early 20s or something. So one of them stuck up their hand and said, why don't you build high-rise, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it seems to be kind of attitudinal change maybe, you know, 
mm-hmm. younger generation as well. And they said, like, what is the problem with that? And we actually had a councillor from Dublin City Council with us, and she talked to them a little bit about some of the kinds of back and forth on the council with what kinds of things would be required to build high-rise in a way that would actually be uh, supporting kind of families in the mm-hmm. city, for example. Mm-hmm. So she's saying they were making arguments that, you know, you need to increase green space for every floor you go up, you need to have other kinds of amenities around it, you do need to have some sort of parking. Mm-hmm. So I think that mm-hmm. there's a danger if we kind of think about that we've got a transient population mm-hmm. at the moment. Maybe yeah. they won't be transient later. Maybe yeah. they'll want to but live in the city. One of the things that's trying to large amount of that, you're you're the baby out of the bathwater. If you create a sure. city, if you create a city that's purely an economic unit, then you strip out the social aspect of it. It becomes a ghost town. And, and but like are, look at the but, look at the IFSC for example. I think from a planning point of view, perhaps the IFSC didn't quite get it right because mm. they had a mix of housing and work, and the mix wasn't right. So mm. it's quite. It's not abandoned, but if you go down there in the evening time, there's not much life around it. You look at Smithfield; it's slightly different, but mm. they seem to have got the mix right around the Docklands area, that there is a mix of social and... But if you go, if you go yeah. walking around Grand Canal Dock and mm. you look at the people around there, who I, I would guess off the top of my head at least 50% of them aren't Irish, and they're all they're, they're mostly in, pre, in pretty decent jobs. And they mostly come from countries where people are used to growing up, having family life in apartments mm. in Eastern Europe, in France, in Germany, in Spain, in Italy. They've all grown up in apartments. It's not beyond the wit of man to, mm. to, to mm. put that together, is it? No, it's not. And like this could be, there could be different kinds of options, you know. So if we did create, you know, some sort of mix in Dublin where you would maybe have some set of apartments which would be for um, a, a more transient population or someone who doesn't necessarily need so much space but there's also the kinds of options for for people who are smaller families to, to, to live in the city but that also requires then other kinds of planning measures outside of just the delivery of physical units itself you know mm, it requires sure. us to create public space it requires us mm. to create the amenities and it also requires us to have an affordability you know, so at the moment, like rents in Dublin have increased by 40% or nationally have increased by 40% more in Dublin over the last three or four years. You know, so increasingly uh, whole sections of the population are, are being excluded from the rental market in the city. And that also has a negative or dimming effect on, on what kinds of uh, life or whatever is yeah. available in the area. But is what you're saying is that a very different approach is needed or is it really just a tweaking of what's being done? I think we need a, a quite a different approach. Like I, I think that what, what we've done in in Ireland historically is that I, th- I think there's usually some sort of housing crisis going on in Ireland or periodically you know there's 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 different kinds of phases of that and I think what we're dealing with at the moment is very much still the outcome of the the last property bubble and some of the effects from that and also some of the policy solutions that were put forward to deal with that so some of the, the problems with the rental sector are an outcome of some policies around NAMA for example mm. right um, but what we need to do, I think, is to take a step back and look at the issue of not just supply, but affordability and security of tenure, and not just in owner occupation, but across kind of three sectors, you know, the private rental sector, social housing and uh, owner occupation. And if we try to get those that mix a bit more right, it will mm-hmm. bring down some of the costs of housing in general for people It will supply other kinds of housing tenure options for people who uh, maybe can't afford to go into their own mm-hmm. occupation. Well, fundamentally, uh, at the moment, isn't there... A major supply crisis is that I mean obviously we have to protect people who are in, in, in accommodation but a lot of people can't get accommodation at the but moment but there's also a major affordability crisis there's also and a major is that, not, ro- is that not rooted to the supply crisis uh, this, I would say it's it's partly rooted to supply crisis but the major affordability crisis you could say you, you'd solve that with a stroke of a pen by putting in rent regulations so people are getting 
evicted from rental accommodation because yeah. mm. the rents are going up. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But what about someone who's coming along and needs a place to live then? There's nowhere for really for them to go. Away. Well, in the last the uh, the, the preliminary results of the census indicated it could be up to 20,000 vacant units in Dublin. Now, yeah, I don't know where well, those are coming from. Well, there's like, 260,000 around the country, and one of the items mm. that we put forward in our submission to Simon Coveney was to have some sort of help. A lot of those houses are in towns, maybe they're in bad nick or whatever, and some sort of help to people to actually bring them up to a standard that you can rent them out. Mm. Because if you go around, say, a town like Kells now, for example, there would be a certain amount of houses. Sort of initiative on that front, because there's yeah, some sort of, like, for, for particularly for, I think, houses in provincial towns, yeah, smaller yeah, towns, there's a living city, city, but I don't think it was yeah, quite successful. Amount of yeah. bigger cities, yeah. yeah. Mm. So we, we're looking for that now in a more widespread yeah, I think to, to get those empty houses. Really the living city initiative itself you're going on there, isn't it, with a focus in, largely on how building three-bedroom houses and housing estates when you've got, you know, towns being hollowed out and well, derelict look, sites well, and look, empty buildings. Certainly, in relation to Longford and Leitrim and Roscommon and places like that, certainly if you look at a town like Balladrine that I'm familiar with, a lot of derelict houses in the town centre and a lot of unfinished estates on the edge. So obviously, mm-hmm. it was clearly a fundamental mistake was made there. But the tax incentive should have been for the houses that were there already. The thing about and the tax then incentive the is you bring in, it's hard to take it out again. Out oh, again. no, I know. But, yeah, I yeah. but the tax incentive there resulted in, in, in yeah. empty houses. I just thought I had asked Tom, actually, did you know the Living City Initiative, mm-hmm. did you guys see any great pickup on that? Because it seems it didn't really seem to take off in a certain no, way. It, was it, it is a good idea. Uh, but part of the problem is the new building regulations, which are very strict in terms of fire safety in particular. So if you want to put uh, living accommodation over a shop or a retail premises or whatever, the actual regulations are massively expensive in that particular area. Uh, isn't there a proposal to kind of ameliorate those in relation to older buildings? And yeah, but to have an, and then like if you take a lot of the streets in Dublin that are that are Georgian or whatever, mm. all of the protection orders. So like I know lots of uh, members who've looked at them and sa- and tried to add up the figures. And at the end of the day, you know. If the figures don't add up, and if you go to your bank and say, look, I have a great plan, I'm going to renovate six uh, apartments on, 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 on wherever, on Baggett Street, uh, and this is my plan. And if your plan shows that the costs are, like, there's a limit to what rent you can get on Baggett Street. So, I mean, that's part of the problem. But I think if we, yeah, <laughs> if we... If we go and look at the same, I think if the government, together with the industry and the, and the rest of the stakeholders, put the same emphasis now on solving the apartment problem, because we're building we're building the office blocks to a very high standard, and clearly there are customers for them, and you know the rent has increased over the last number of years, and the expectation from the experts is there will be further increase in office rent next year, but probably saying that we're getting close enough to peak rent for office, for high-end office in Dublin at the moment. Now, you could say we've gone beyond that in terms of uh, of, of rental, renting a two-bed apartment. We've gone beyond peak. But that's absolutely a supply issue. So I think if we start concentrating on that issue, see where are the issues. Height, that we talked about, height is a major issue. Like, if you could build a 12 or 14 uh, floor apartment block, it makes the whole economy of scale very, very uh, much better for the investor. And at the end of the day, the builder can only start building if the investor says, look, I'm prepared to put the money up. Uh, And I was at a conference this morning with international speakers and they were saying the same challenges exist around the rest of the world. London is probably a bit of an exception. And we have some of our Irish players that are attempting to get off the ground here that are already building. And some of them are some of the biggest apartment builders in London. But it's such a dynamic place that they can have their apartments pre-sold. So the problem around the world is what? that it's very difficult to make a viable plan to build a block of residential apartments. 
That's just the difficulty right across the world. Like the standards that apply to apartments, first of all, you've got to go way down into the ground with a massive hole in the ground. Foundation-wise, put the car parks down there and so on. Even to get rid of that waste material now is a major cost and a major challenge. Then you've got to finish the whole block before you can sell one. If you're building uh, 25 houses out in Kells, you can build five, you can have a show house and people and advertise them for sale. People will come in, pay their deposits, buy, and then you're building the next five and the next five. But so the that's a very block, different kind of a model in terms of financing. You need the whole 100 million up front from some investor uh, the day you start and you can't start selling them until they're finished. Now, if we did have the confidence here in terms of our economy and in terms of the whole sector uh, and in terms of financiers that, uh, you know, that people would buy them or that some player, you know, we have Kennedy Wilson here, you know, are a global player in terms of that area uh, and they are doing some of those and they will retain those apartments and they will be the landlord into the future. Keen, do you agree with that analysis? Because I'm interested to hear that it's, a, that it's an international problem. I mean, you, you said earlier that Ireland always has a housing crisis and that's been my perception. It's just, it's always something, it's a boom or a bust or a <laughs> rental disaster or it's something, you know, for some reason it seems to be particularly Irish recurring running so um, I think Ireland has a lot of uh, long-term problems of housing, um, but it, it comes right, it is an international problem. Like, so I, I was at an event uh, recently which organised by the European Coalition on the Right to Housing and it's very kind of What's very interesting there is how similar a lot of the problems that are coming in different countries around Europe are to Ireland. So there's a similar problem with the cost of rents. There's a similar problem uh, with sort of access to mortgages or whatever, with affordable housing, with a a decrease in social housing. But the different kinds of countries have different kinds of models. So different kinds of countries have more or less protections than Ireland. So uh, Tom mentioned Kennedy Wilson there, for example. And I think there's, there's also... That's, they're part of the problem in, in a way. So Kennedy Wilson are like a large investment firm come in and they want to invest in apartments. Uh, but they also are an investment firm which from you know a point of view an investor invests money and in they're going to get returns in it. So part of their rationale is that they get I think 17% back for their investors. So that requires them to increase rents. So part of the reason rents are going up in different parts around the world is that these actors like Kennedy Wilson are getting more involved in residential housing markets in different Mm -hmm. parts of the world. So another company, Blackstone, which is another investment firm, um, uh, has heard uh, an activist talking from Atlanta. He suggested that Blackstone were after buying 11,000 apartments in a particular part of New York, which gives them a massive power then to set rental uh, market rates so and uh, we've got a situation IRES in Ireland owns two over 2,000 apartments in Dublin now I think which also gives them a big market power to set what the market rate is although we did hear for years that one of the problems of the Irish market was Mm. that you had all these small amateur landlords Mm. and that was one of the reasons why it was so fragmented it was such a mess Mm. and that we needed big players in the market there's there's problems with both of them I think but I think what we're we need need to be careful that we're not mistaking kind of um, an international investment firm and their kinds of needs in terms of returns to their shareholders for a different kind of model that might have existed in a country like Germany or Austria where you had a large uh, landlord who owned a set of apartment blocks and they got a, a, a slow return. In a very heavily regulated uh, environment. Heavily regulated environment. I yeah. wonder if this model of affordable rental that they're talking mm-hmm. about is probably going to form part of this strategy that's announced next week. It's already being flagged whereby you would give some sort of incentive for developers to build a certain amount of apartments, but then the quid pro quo is that the rents would be set at like 70% thereof of the market rate. Is that a model that you can see working in the long term, and would that be attractive for builders to, to actually go for? Well, I think builders certainly will. Builders yeah. will build, but the, the, the issue is who's going to finance it. And what I hear all of the time from all the players is that as soon as you talk about fixing rents, uh, financiers get very, very nervous about investing here. 
So, you know, that seems to be a problem. It's not a problem about the building. Well, know? I'm sure that anybody looking to invest in anything, when told that the market was going to be more regulated, would resist that to some extent. But surely, it, if, if the numbers add up, you know, not that you can never increase your rates, but your rents, but, but you can't do them mm. above a certain level above the CPI mm. or, or whatever the system yeah. is. Once they can do the sums and mm. see what the returns are, that yeah, should but be like, this is We're playing into the hands of increased rent by not having to supply. And the, the positive thing, as soon as somebody, a couple, buys a house, they immediately pull out of the rent. I'd say there's nearly no first-time buyer that isn't in rented accommodation at the moment. So the minute you add to the supply, you make a rental property available. And the more that becomes available, the better. And, you know, you just mentioned about the amateur landlords. And I'm not sure, I'm not one myself, uh, but there could be one, well, one around the I'm table. I'm not one either. Uh, Anybody in the room? You know, anyone that has them, anyone that has a, a house to rent, it's a nightmare, apparently, mm. now. Mm. Like, you're paying over 60% of your rental income directly to the taxpayer. And mm. there's constantly a problem. And they're being sold. And that's partly the reason. And I read a, a story yesterday. I'm not sure. Mm. I think it might have been on the Indo. Mm. A couple that are earning 60000 between them. Uh, and now they're being asked to leave their home because their part-time landlord says, I need to get out. I need to sell it. Uh, and they, with sixty grand, they can't qualify, even though they have some savings. And maybe the changes that are going to come in after January will help them in terms of deposits. Uh, at sixty, at sixty grand between them, they currently can't qualify for a mortgage. You hear all that. On the other hand, the other hand, you hear a lot about cash buyers swamping the market, and I, don't, I think those cash buyers are going to be renting renting those properties a lot of the time. But they're not buying the starter home. Mm. You know, they're buying the you know they're buying they're people that are either trading up or trading down. They're not buying the starter home. And you know, somebody mentioned the fact figure to me lately that if you decided if you got a windfall in the morning, you got three hundred grand, and you say I'm going to buy a starter home and I'm going to rent it out, uh, you'd need to get about eighteen hundred euros a month to just give you any sort of return on that three hundred thousand. And that's really an unsustainable rent for somebody to be paying for a three-bed house. So that's just the the, the, the situation. Really, the 300,000 house is too expensive. Yeah. And, you know, the problem is when you go look, and I you know, I sound like a broken record about this, you know, when you look at what, where did the costs go with the 300,000 house, less than half of the cost is the hard building cost. The builder comes in and he digs the foundation and he puts in all the radon cover and he does the whole thing absolutely with the new big car regulations and there's the house finished at 150 grand, less than that. And then you see, where's the rest of it? He's got to buy the site. How much is the site? Well, that depends. If you're buying one in, in Dublin 4, it's probably costing you in excess uh, of Dublin 4, in, in excess of 100 grand a site, even for a modest house or in an apartment size, it could be 100 grand for the space for the house. You've got to pay the VAT at 13.5%. That doesn't apply in the north of Ireland or in the UK, and it's a, an exceptional charge here that we have. And to most houses, it's 40 or 50 grand. And then you've got to pay the building, uh, the, the local levies, which is probably... 12 to 15 grand and yet then you've got to pay a part five contribution which is a contribution that was originally designed to sort of make the builder or the developer make a contribution to social housing but who ends up paying it the unfortunate first-time buyer that has to try to get on the housing ladder ladder to make space available in the rental sector for whoever else so it's it's money 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 and indeed that contribution to social housing key was one of the disasters of the of of, of the previous regime under 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 Fianna Fáil it should be said Thomas that. Um, because it was first of all, it was supposed to encourage more mixed, more mixed developments, so that you didn't have classification, and then it ended up just being a payment to councils. And did they actually invest it in social housing in the end? Well, I mean, if the councils decided to take a payment, that was a matter for themselves, and a lot of them weren't controlled by Fianna Fáil during that period. I think the policy that we brought in was extremely progressive. 
But, you know, extremely progressive that you would actually have, you know, a certain amount of housing. I certainly live in a state where there's a mix. I don't know who's in an affordable or who's in a a social house in that estate. Uh, If councils then decided not to uh, allow this to happen, that was wrong. And I'm certainly not taking responsibility for that, but I am taking responsibility for what was an extremely progressive policy. Uh, And I think I do believe in it still. I think it has to happen. Uh, We have to have that contribution coming. And... You know, we, we, we think that the, the rollback on... I think it's fair that the first-time buyer has to pay it. I, I, I agree with the policy well, and I agree with integrated uh, living and society and so on, but it's the first-time buyer for that starter home that has to pay. I know I've just checked with a, a quantity surveyor this week. He told me of uh, a group of 30 houses. took him, he said, months to agree the contribution with the local authority because they're not sure in terms of the new the new changes have been brought in. Mm. He said it was tedious trying to agree the contribution, but eventually it was 15,000 per unit. Uh, so and, and that's unfortunate. When you do your sums, the only place all those costs can be covered is the unfortunate first-time buyer has to come to the buy them. The unfortunate first-time buyer is going to have a lot of help from next that's January that's if you take into account to, to help the buy scheme and the central bank rules. Like We went from a situation weeks ago where you had to have uh, a mortgage of 10% to 220 grand and 20% thereafter, and you didn't have any help to a situation where you have to have basically... In effect, a five percent mortgage. If you take into effect the, the or sorry, five percent deposit. If you take into effect to help the buy scheme, and the central bank rules. But what I think is the interesting thing is, uh, you know, that is designed to make it more viable for developers to build start homes, which is probably going to happen because there's going to be a bit more demand from them. It's going to be easier. But of course, people say it's going to drive a price, and is that likely to happen in your view? That although it will increase supply, it'll also increase price. Well, I saw the SRI hmm. who. Were more expert than I am mm. in terms of what's going to happen. I think suggesting that it will be a five to seven percent increase over the next number of years in house prices. In house prices, uh, we've had substantially more than that because of the lack of supply situation. Mm. So, uh, you know, while there is a scarcity of supply, if it was a scarcity of of cattle in the morning, and I keep a few to myself, uh, you'd be expecting the price of cattle to go up. Mm. And if there's an oversupply, it's the opposite situation. So it's a very much so a supply and demand evil. So I. Well, it's not an but, evil for Tom, for but, Tom's members, because because it's going to drive up prices, which presumably you would argue, Tom, means that you're going to build more houses. But it's, it's almost like the great unspoken of this policy that nobody in government is going to acknowledge that it, it's, 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 it's driving up prices. I didn't know it was a great unspoken. Certainly what myself and my colleagues would seem to believe that the government deliberate policy is actually to drive well, you, up prices. You, you, you guys had a, a policy that was remarkably actually wasn't similar at all it was it was basically an SSIA scheme for house building in, in your manifesto so your current conversion to you know let's see how the market goes is a bit kind no, of no no we're not saying that we, 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 we had uh, incentives there but we, we, we felt that this particular one uh, had the potential to drive up prices in a way that you know wasn't fair for next year but, like, um, but it seems to be the deliberate that, that, tactic that, 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 in fairness you have said that but like your policy is not much different and your kind of efforts to cast yourself as holier than thou on this I don't think really hold water but the so, uh, spoke uh, when you, I, I, don't, I mean I don't accept that at all I think well your policy your, your manifesto had basically no, no, I mean, I don't a top up saving scheme yeah. f- f- to a limit of 10, 5 grand or something like that it was basically an SSIA for houses yeah. So how is that dis- I mean, similar the, to this income tax refund? The, the, the idea that, you know, it's, um, you know, that we don't have a leg to stand on, I don't I'm not saying you have a leg to stand on, but I don't, because, I mean, part, of, be part of our decision to, you know, from the opposition benches to support a minority government yeah. was actually to try to 
get them to solve the housing crisis yeah. and to try to have a I proper that, solution but, but to you, that. But your policy is almost the exact same. The mechanism by which you, do, you give first-time buyers cash is different, but the, the principle is the same and it will have the same effect on it's, prices. It's, it's, it's a different mechanism. There's a whole range of but items the point, here. the principle the, is the same. The, 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 there's another issue there as well, and that is, of course, with the, the change in the deposit rules, which went a lot further than a lot of us expected. I think that, I think that changes the context of all of this. Yeah, but you guys were giving out about price before the rules changed. In budget day, you were saying this is going to drive up prices, whereas your policy league would have the exact same... I, I, I don't accept that. I mean, what we, what we were saying is we had, we had an issue with this because we felt it was going to drive up prices and maybe not... not now, I have to say, the first-time buyers disagreed with us because a lot of them were on to us about this uh, at the time. I mean, they obviously wanted to see an incentive. But we were concerned that, you know, what might appear to be an incentive uh, would, in fact, um, you know, hurt them in the long term. Now, they've got extra help as a result of the changes to the deposit that were not expected. It certainly weren't part of our submission on, on that. And, you know, we question whether the scheme is necessary. There's going to be a full review of it, I think a completely independent review of it. It's, it's difficult to see that the scheme lasts very long in that context. I think I think what we're seeing is, like, there's a contradiction here, right? So Tom just mentioned there that 300000 is too expensive for a house, right? And we're talking then about driving up house prices yeah. as a good thing to get construction going, to get supply going. And I think that's based fundamentally on the idea of, of the house as a commodity that can be traded, you know? So this idea that your house is a saving also. And I think that's, you know, what's proven from the boom in the bust is that that's totally unsustainable and that the kind of current situation we're in, we can't really continue that model. We're talking about more people being excluded from owner occupation, the rental sector becoming uh, a bigger part of how people live and how people get access to housing. So we were talking as well about the part five, about the 20% contribution to social affordable housing. When that was initially brought in, the initial act, that was 20% of all uh, new housing developments need to be social affordable housing. But within a year, there was that loophole clause brought in about a contribution. So that contribution was something that was brought in... By uh, Fianna Fáil government. By Fianna Fáil government. Uh, so the initial uh, progressive policy was actually undermined uh, very substantially uh, a year later. And that kind of has partly driven what the, the decrease in the level of social housing that we're now experiencing at mm. the moment. And that's kind of where some of the kind of problems, some of the tensions are coming in, where some of the homeless population in particular is coming from. Because a lot of people who are becoming homeless are those social housing tenants who are in rent, sub, rent assistance schemes in private sector housing. Uh, and because landlords now naturally can get higher profits. They're putting for, up the rent they're putting and, and the then rent. it's not being covered by their social welfare. But the, the problem yeah. there is partly that uh, it's it's not really the responsibility of private landlords to provide social housing and, and part of it is a divestment from the state onto the private sector again and onto uh, landlords and the construction sector to solve some of the problems at the housing system that more substantial investment would be needed to actually deal with. Yeah, I, I just say in response to that, I mean, I don't know what the part five was brought in, was it in the 2000 Planning Act? Yeah. So the idea that a scheme brought in 18 years or 16 years ago is now directly responsible for, for this, I think, is simply... I don't think that's being said. Oh, well, he did say it. He, it's directly, he said responsible it was directly responsible for reducing the amount of social housing. Yeah. So, like, mm. what, what essentially happened, you said, you know, it's up to local authorities what they want to do with the contribution. And many in of those local of authorities didn't choose to then invest it in building and social the, and housing. And they should have. And they should Perhaps have. they should have, yeah. And, and uh, some of them did. But it's, it's, it's one of the reasons in which... Uh, because this was the plan, essentially, that was going to take over from the state providing social housing uh, themselves and providing and funding it, that it was a mechanism whereby, because we had so much development going on, we could then rely on the private sector to deliver that as well. And there's some progressive elements to it, I don't, I don't yeah. deny that. And, and I certainly it, can, can it, point it, to a lot of estates in my constituency where there is that mix. Fik, I want to wrap up on the politics of this. This is, as I said at the outset, it's seen as being the biggest uh, the biggest challenge facing the government, arguably alongside alongside health. But 
I think some of what we'd hear here here today would would indicate what we all know, which is this ain't going to be fixed overnight, and it ain't going to be fixed mm. possibly, almost certainly, in the uh, or even close to being seen no. to be starting to be fixed mm. in the lifetime of this government, prob- probably. So, what are the what are the politics of housing for the for the government and for Fianna Fáil well, as well? I, I think to a certain extent that the the, the politics of it. Um, in terms of taking action is largely done and that we've seen this housing action plan that is designed to be a medium term and longer term process we're going to see this rental strategy so I think perhaps the politics if you were being uh, if you were at the top of government you would possibly say that there's nothing more that can be done apart from sit back and wait for your measures to catch up with what you've done because if you interfere too much you can perhaps overcomplicate things so I think the politics of it are perhaps to be slightly to be patient, I think, and I think nobody expects that you're going to click your fingers in a house and say it's going to be built next door to you in a day. But I think if there is progress within a year, and these rental measures, these are, rental are, measures are the last, are the last I, piece I of the think jigsaw. they're the last piece of the jigsaw. Because if you do think back to, like, you know, you said we're always in a housing crisis, so we come out of the economic crisis. The, the focus is very much on fixing the economy, getting the banks back in, back in shape. I was taken off the ball on the housing issue and then we came back but even in 2020 I think Tom might correct me 2013 there was a housing plan as well last by the last government so we've had numerous plans and plans and plans but I think you just have to wait for supply to catch up now I, I wouldn't be quite so sanguine as fake in terms of I'm the, not saying the sanguine, political situation I have to say I think you know, this country is a history the, of political activism based on yeah. you know, housing crises and, but and evictions short and of, I have to say I think if, if there's not action on this very very you know, short, if it doesn't appear I'm talk, shortly yeah, I'm talking about build, building as a short of basically the government getting all the money to have and building direct build council yeah. houses there's nothing more I don't yeah. think that and they can do state owned land yeah, state yeah. owned land well, in terms of they did that seeing, that would be the big thing don't start that. seeing and that will they, and will they do that well I understand that there's a major investigation there's a lot of land laying idle around the city and around the country that's Indeed. owned by the state and, and they're reluctant and, and state agencies and the likes of Erin Road Erin or Waterways Ireland or whatever mm. there's lots of land that I believe are being identified now if the state can secure those land uh, get a fairly mm. uh, uh, dynamic uh, 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 programme ready to put X number of units on it, put it up to tender. You'll have them the public, within the 12 months. needs to see houses coming in that are more affordable, yeah. rents being more affordable, and basically fundamentally to supply coming into the market. And the public will not put up with any government yeah. or any politician public, that doesn't it, it, deliver. In terms of that. electoral politics, let's say, like, you know, the Conference Supply Agreement runs till 2018, budget yeah. 2018, which is, you know, a couple of years away. I think from electoral politics, if the public were to see some action on the housing front that, you know, there was building going on in your local community. You might not have new houses built, but you saw activity. I think then perhaps the political system would get the credit that they have done something and they have spurred activity in the market. I want to give you a last word, and this came from the broader perspective. So, so well, just on a specific point first, like so, two examples recently in Dublin, you know, show that we're we're kind of not maybe doing that where we're taking state land and building social housing. So at the moment, there's plans to sell off mm. some of the former land of regeneration estates around uh, different parts of the city and also what was the for- former Priory Hall there's no plans to sell them to the private sector as well mm-hmm. so an argument could be made for taking those units which essentially are owned by Dublin City Council at the moment and using them for affordable and social mm-hmm. housing um, on the broader point I-, I would just reiterate I think that you know uh, focusing on supply without uh, affordability and security of tenure is going to kind of produce or reproduce some of the same problems I think that we've been having and I think it might temporarily if we if increased supply will temporarily solve some of the housing problems uh, but if we're going to do that in such a way that house prices increase exponentially rents increase exponentially then we're still going to have uh, a real housing problem we shall leave it there thanks very much to everybody
And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to Tom and Thomas and Kean and Fiak for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter at hlinehan. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.